This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello, I hope you've had a great week and your practice has gone well. We are following Namkar Pal's text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, which is a commentary on the practices known as the Seven Points of Mind Training. We've covered Tong Len, the practice of taking on suffering and giving out happiness, and that led to the section on taking adverse circumstances into the path to enlightenment. As we all know, life is not consistent. Sometimes it goes well, at other times it just sucks. If you're Woody Allen, it fluctuates between the horrible and the miserable, but for the most of us, it has ups as well as downs. The question for a person on a spiritual path is, how do I approach the whole life experience so then when it comes to an end, I would have gained the most I could out of it? It is a valid question, and if we think deeply about it, we can see that we will be missing out on countless opportunities if we only can use the good times to progress on the spiritual path. If we can use both the good and the bad times, then it won't matter what life throws at us. We can still get some advantage from it. This, of course, means not being overly concerned about what circumstances we come across, but always being ready to work within them whatever they are. In Buddhist terms, taking adverse circumstances into the path means finding something useful in even the worst kind of experiences, if we possibly can. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, psychiatrist Viktor Frankl looks into his experiences in the Nazi concentration camps and finds that suffering can be transformed by finding meaning. He writes, The more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause or service or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. What is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all, for the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. Frankel says that meaning in life can be found by creating a work or deed, through an experience or an encounter, and by the attitude we take towards unavoidable suffering. Finding meaning by the first, that's creating a work or deed, he says is obvious. In explaining encountering another, he says that for true understanding, the encounter must be through love. Only through love can we see the fundamental traits and features of another, but perhaps more importantly, their potential, not yet actualized. He writes, Furthermore, by his love, the loving person enables the beloved person to actualize these potentialities. By making him aware of what he can be and of what he should become, he makes these potentialities come true. Then, in writing about the meaning of suffering, he writes, We must never forget that we may also find meaning in life even when confronted with a hopeless situation, when facing a fate that cannot be changed. For what then matters is to bear witness to the uniquely human potential at its best, which is to transform a personal tragedy into a triumph, to turn one's predicament into a human achievement. 
when we are no longer able to change a situation or just think of an incurable disease like an inoperable cancer, we are challenged to change ourselves. He then tells of an elderly patient, also a doctor, who came to see him about severe depression brought on by the loss of his wife two years previously. Instead of counselling him, Dr. Frankel asked the question, What would have happened, doctor, if you had died first and your wife would have had to survive you? Oh, the doctor said, for her this would have been terrible. How she would have suffered. Whereupon Frankel replied, You see, doctor, such a suffering has been spared her, and it was you who have spared her the suffering, to be sure at the price that you now have to survive and mourn her. And he writes, The doctor said no word, but shook my hand and calmly left my office. In some way, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds meaning, such as the meaning of sacrifice. Man's main concern, writes Frankel, is not to gain pleasure or evade pain, but to find a meaning in life. He writes, that is why man is ever ready to suffer, on the condition to be sure that his suffering has a meaning. The Buddhist approach of Tonglen is to define the meaning of an individual's suffering in terms of the suffering of all others. When we can see our own suffering as the suffering of all, then the alleviating of our suffering becomes the freedom for all others. Merely contemplating this can bring so much relief. Imagine if you could take all the sufferings of all beings everywhere and give them all happiness. Would that not have an enormous meaning? Even relieving the suffering of one being can bring so much happiness and meaning to one's life. We don't need to talk about the meaning of even the intention to relieve all beings. I recently read Lauren Isley's story, The Star Thrower, and it seems to speak to this theme, if not overtly, yet very personally. It is beautifully written, but not exactly easygoing, so it needs concentration. At some 16 pages, it cannot be read the whole way through here, but let's look at some relevant excerpts. It calls for reading again and again, so if you want to, you can find it as a PDF at the website www.learning-living.com. Here goes. It has ever been my lot, though formerly myself a teacher, to be taught surely by none. There are times when I have thought to read lessons in the sky, or in books, or from the behavior of my fellows, but in the end, my perceptions have frequently been inadequate or betrayed. Nevertheless, I venture to say that of what man may be, I have caught a fugitive glimpse, not among multitudes of men, but along an endless wave-beaten coast at dawn. As always, there is this apparent break, this rift in nature, before the insight comes. The terrible question has to translate itself into an even more terrifying freedom. It began, if I may borrow the expression from a Buddhist sage, with the skull and the eye. I was the skull. I was the inhumanly stripped skeleton, without voice, without hope, wandering alone upon the shores of the world. I was devoid of pity, because pity implies hope. There was in this desiccated skull only an eye like a pharos light, a beacon, a search beam revolving endlessly in sunless noonday or black night. Ideas like swarms of insects rose to the beam, but the light consumed them. Upon that shore, meaning had ceased. There were only the dead skull and the revolving eye. With such an eye, some have said, science looks upon the world. 
I do not know. I know only that I was the skull of emptiness and the endlessly revolving light without pity. Once in a dingy restaurant in the town, I had heard a woman say, My father reads a goosebone for the weather. A modern primitive, I had thought, a diviner using a method older than Stonehenge, as old as the Arctic forests. And where does he do that? The woman's companion had asked amusedly. In Costabel, she answered complacently. In Costabel. The voice came back and buzzed faintly for a moment in the dark under the revolving eye. It did not make sense. But nothing in Costabel made sense. And perhaps that's why I had finally found myself in Costabel. Perhaps all men are destined at some time to arrive there as I did. I'd come by quite ordinary means, but I was still the skull with the eye. I concealed myself beneath a fisherman's cap and sunglasses so that I looked like everyone else on the beach. This is the way things are managed in Costabel. It's on the shore that the revolving eye begins its beam and the whispers rise in the empty darkness of the skull. The beaches of Costabel are littered with the debris of life. Shells are cast up in windrows. A hermit crab, fumbling for a new home in the depths, is tossed naked ashore, where the waiting gulls cut him to pieces. Along the strip of wet sand that marks the ebbing and flowing of the tide, death walks hugely and in many forms. Even the torn fragments of green sponge yield bits of scrambling life, striving to return to the great mother that has nourished and protected them. In the end, the sea rejects its offspring. They cannot fight their way home through the surf, which casts them repeatedly back upon the shore. The tiny, breathing paws of starfish are stuffed with the sand. The rising sun shrivels the mucilaginous bodies of the unprotected. The sea beach and its endless war are soundless. Nothing screams but the gulls. In the night, particularly in the tourist season or during great storms, one can observe another vulturine activity. One can see in the hour before dawn on the ebb tide electric torches bobbing like fireflies along the beach. It is the sign of the professional shellers seeking to outrun and to anticipate their less aggressive neighbours. A kind of greedy madness sweeps over the competing collectors. After a storm, one can see them hurrying along with bundles of gathered starfish, or toppling and overburdened, clutching bags of living shells whose hidden occupants will be slowly cooked and dissolved in the outdoor kettles provided by the resort hotels for the cleaning of specimens. Following one such episode, I met the star thrower. As soon as the ebb was flowing, as soon as I could make out in my sleeplessness the flashlights on the beach, I arose and dressed in the dark. As I came down the steps to the shore, I could hear the deeper rumble of the surf. A gaping hole filled with churning sand had cut sharply into the breakwater. Flying sand as light as powder coated every exposed object, like snow. I made my way around the altered edges of the cove and proceeded on my morning walk up the shore. Now and then a stooping figure moved in the gloom or a rain squall swept past me with light pattering steps. There was a faint sense of coming light somewhere behind me in the east. Soon I began to make out objects, upended timbers, conch shells, sea-rack wrenched from the far-out kelp forests. A pink-clawed crab encased in a green cup of sponge lay sprawling where the waves had tossed him. Long-limbed starfish were strewn everywhere, 
as though the night sky had showered down. I paused once briefly. A small octopus, its beautifully dark-lensed eyes bleared with sand, gazed up at me from a ragged bundle of tentacles. I hesitated and touched it briefly with my foot. It was dead. I paced on once more before the spreading white caps of the surf. The shore grew steeper, the sound of the sea heavier and more menacing as I rounded a bluff into the full blast of the offshore wind. I was away from the shallows now and strode more rapidly over the wet sand that effaced my footprints. Around the next point there might be a refuge from the wind. The sun behind me was pressing upward at the horizon's rim, an ominous red glare amidst the tumbling blackness of the clouds. Ahead of me, over the projecting point, a gigantic rainbow of incredible perfection had sprung shimmering into existence. Somewhere towards its foot, I discerned a human figure standing, as it seemed to me, within the rainbow, though unconscious of his position. He was gazing fixedly at something in the sand. Eventually, he stooped and flung the object beyond the breaking surf. I laboured towards him over a half-mile of uncertain footing. By the time I reached him, the rainbow had receded ahead of us, but something of its colour still ran hastily in many changing lights across his features. He was starting to kneel again. In a pool of sand and silt, a starfish had thrust its arms up stiffly and was holding its body away from the stifling mud. It's still alive, I ventured. Yes, he said, and with a quick yet gentle movement, he picked up the star and spun it over my head and far out into the sea. It sank in a burst of spume, and the waters roared once more. It may live, he said, if the offshore pull is strong enough. He spoke gently, and across his bronzed-worn face the light still came and went in subtly altering colours. There are not many come this far, I said, groping in a sudden embarrassment for words. Do you collect? Only like this, he said, gesturing amidst the wreckage of the shore, and only for the living. He stooped again, oblivious of my curiosity, and skipped another star neatly across the water. The stars, he said, throw well. One can help them. He looked full at me with a faint question kindling in his eyes, which seemed to take in the far depths of the sea. I do not collect, I said uncomfortably, the wind beating at my garments. Neither the living nor the dead. I gave it up a long time ago. Death is the only successful collector. I could feel the full night blackness in my skull and the terrible eye resuming its indifferent journey. I nodded and walked away, leaving him upon the dune with that great rainbow ranging up the sky behind him. I turned as I neared a bend in the coast and saw him toss another star, skimming it skillfully far out over the ravening and tumultuous water. For a moment in the changing light, the sower appeared magnified, as though casting larger stars upon some greater sea. He had, at any rate, the posture of a god. But again the eye, the cold, world-shriveling eye, began its inevitable circling in my skull. He's a man, I considered sharply, bringing my thought to rest. The star throws a man, and death is running more fleet than he along every sea beach in the world. I adjusted the dark lens of my glasses, and thus disguised, I paced slowly back by the starfish gatherers, past the shell collectors with their vulgar little spades and the stick-length shelling pinches that eased their elderly backs while they snatched at treasures in the sand. I chose to look full at the steaming kettles in which beautiful voiceless things were being boiled alive.
Behind my sunglasses, a kind of litany began and refused to die down. As I came through the desert, thus it was as I came through the desert. The meeting with the star thrower becomes a kind of epiphany in which the pitiless eye and the loveless intellect of the, of the scientist is challenged. Eiserly talks about Darwin and Freud as releases of darkness. He says Darwin, the prime student of the struggle for existence, sought to visualize in a tangled bank of leaves the silent and insatiable war of nature. He saw life as a purely selfish struggle in which nothing is modified for the good of another species without being directly advantageous to its associated form. And then Eiserly lights on the great psychoanalyst. From thesis and antithesis contained in Darwinism, we come to Freud, writes Eiserly. The public know that, like Darwin, the master of the inner world took the secure, stable and sunlit province of the mind and revealed it as a place of contending furies. Ghostly transformations, flitting night shadows, misshapen changelings exist there, as real as anything that haunted the natural universe of Darwin. Isley writes about once rummaging through things in an old abandoned previous home and finding in an old satchel a photograph. I recognized at once the two sisters at the edge of the photograph, the younger clinging reluctantly to the older. Six years old, I thought, turning momentarily away from the younger child's face. Here it began, her pain and mine. The eyes in the photograph were already remote and shadowed by some inner turmoil. The poise of the body was already that one of miserably departing the peripheries of, human, of the human estate. The gaze was mutely clairvoyant and lonely. It was the gaze of a child who knew unbearable indifference and impending isolation. Now at Costabel, I put on the sunglasses once more, but the face from the torn photograph persisted behind them. It was as though I, as man, was being asked to confront in all its overbearing weight the universe itself. Love not the world, the biblical injunction runs, neither the things that are in the world. The revolving beam in my mind had stopped, and the insect whispering of the intellect. There was at last an utter stillness, a waiting as though for a cosmic judgment. The eye, the torn eye, considered me. But I do love the world, I whispered to the waiting presence in the waiting room. I love its small ones, the things beaten in the strangling surf, the birds singing which flies and falls and is not seen again. I choked and said with the torn eye upon me, I love the lost ones, the failures of the world. It was like the renunciation of my scientific heritage. The torn eye survived me sadly and was gone. I had come full upon one of the great rifts in nature and the merciless beam no longer was in traverse around my skull. But no, it was not a rift, but a joining. The expression of love projected beyond the species boundary by a creature born of Darwinian struggle, the silent war under the tangled bank. Isley then goes on to write, I had seen the star thrower cross that rift, and in doing so he had reasserted the human right to define his own frontier. He had moved to the utmost edge of being, if not across its boundaries. It was as though, at some point, the supernatural had touched hesitantly for an instant upon the natural. Out of the depths of a seemingly empty universe had grown an eye, like the eye in my room, but an eye on a vastly larger scale. It looked out upon what I could only call itself, 
It searched the skies and it searched the depths of being. In the shape of man it had ascended like a vaporous emanation from the depths of the night. The nothing had miraculously gazed upon the nothing and was not content. It was an intrusion into or a projection out of nature for which no precedent existed. The act was, in short, an assertion of value arisen from the domain of absolute zero. A little whirlwind of commingling molecules had succeeded in confronting its own universe. Here at last was the rift that lay beyond Darwin's tangled bank. For a creature, arisen from that bank and born of its contentions, had stretched out its hand in pity. Some ancient, inexhaustible and patient intelligence, lying dispersed in the planetary fields of force or amidst the inconceivable cold of interstellar space, had chosen to endow its desolation with apparition as mysterious as itself. The fate of man is to be the ever-reproachful eye floating upon night and solitude. The world cannot be said to exist, save by the interposition of that inward eye, an eye various and not under the restraints to be apprehended from what is vulgarly called the natural. I had been unbelieving. I had walked away from the star-throw in the hardened indifference of maturity. But thought, mediated by the eye, is one of nature's infinite disguises. Belatedly I rose with a solitary mission. I set forth in an effort to find the star-thrower. Man is himself, like the universe he inhabits, like the demoniacal stirrings of the ooze from which he sprang, a tale of desolations. He walks in his mind from birth to death the long resounding shores of endless disillusionment. Finally the commitment to life departs or turns to bitterness. But out of such desolation emerges the awesome freedom to choose to choose beyond the narrowly circumscribed circle that delimits the animal being. In that widening ring of human choice, chaos and order renew their symbolic struggle in the role of titans. They contend for the destiny of a world. Somewhere far up the coast wandered the star throw beneath his rainbow. Our exchange had been brief because upon that coast I had learned that men who ventured out at dawn resented others in the greediness of their compulsive collecting. I had also been abrupt, because I had, in the terms of my profession and experience, nothing to say. The star-thrower was mad, and his particular acts were a folly with which I had not chosen to associate myself. I was an observer and a scientist. Nevertheless, I had seen the rainbow attempting to attach itself to earth. On a point of land, as though projecting into a domain beyond us, I found the star-thrower. In the sweet rain-swept morning, that great many-hued rainbow still lurked and wavered tentatively beyond him. Silently I sought and picked up a still-living star, spinning it far out into the waves. I spoke once briefly. I understand. I said, call me another thrower. Only then I allowed myself to think. He is not alone any longer. After us, there will be others. We were part of the rainbow, an unexplained pro projection into the natural. As I went down the beach, I could feel the drawing of a circle in men's minds, like that lowering, shifting realm of colour in which the thrower laboured. It was a visible model of something towards which man's mind had striven, the circle of perfection. I picked and flung another star. Perhaps far outward in the rim of space, a genuine star was similarly being seized and flung. I could feel the movement in my body. It was like a sowing, the sowing of life in an infinitely gigantic scale. I looked back across my shoulder. Small and dark, against the receding rainbow, the star-thrower stooped and flung once more. 
I never looked again. The task we had assumed was too immense for gazing. I flung and flung again, while all about us roared the insatiable waters of death. But we, pale and alone and small in that immensity, hurled back the living stars. Somewhere far off, across the bottomless abyss, I felt as though another world was flung more joyfully. I could have thrown in a frenzy of joy, but I set my shoulders and cast, as the throw in the rainbow cast, slowly, deliberately, and well. The task was not to be assumed lightly, for it was men as well as starfish that we sought to save. For a moment we cast on an infinite beach together beside an unknown hurler of suns. It was, unsought, the destiny of my kind, since the rituals of the Ice Age hunters, when life in the northern hemisphere had come close to vanishing. We'd lost our way, I thought, but we'd kept some of us, the memory of the perfect circle of compassion from life to death and back, back again to life, the completion of the rainbow of existence. Even the hunters in the snow, making obeisance to the souls of the hunted, had known the cycle. The legend had come down and lingered that he who gained the gratitude of animals gained help in need from the dark wood. I cast again with an increasingly remembered sewing motion and went my lone way up the beaches. Somewhere, I felt, in a great atavistic surge of feeling, somewhere the great thrower knew. Perhaps he smiled and cast once more into the boundless pit of darkness. Perhaps he too was lonely, and the end towards which he laboured remained hidden, even as with ourselves. I picked up a star whose tube feet ventured timidly among my fingers, while, like a true star, it cried soundlessly for life. I saw it with an unaccustomed clarity and cast far out. With it, I flung myself as forefeet for the first time into some unknown dimension of existence. From Darwin's tangled bank of unceasing struggle, selfishness and death had arisen incomprehensibly the thrower who loved not man, but life. It was the subtle cleft in nature before which biological thinking had faltered. We had reached the last shore of an invisible island, yet strangely also a shore that the primitives had always known. They had sensed intuitively that man cannot exist spiritually without life, his brother, even if he slays. Somewhere, my thought persisted, there is a hurler of stars, and he walks because he chooses, always in desolation, but not in defeat. In the night, the gas flames under the shelling kettles would continue to glow. I set my clock accordingly. Tomorrow I would walk in the storm. I would walk against the shell collectors in the flames. I would walk remembering Bacon's forgotten words for the uses of life. I would walk with the knowledge of the discontinuities of the unexpected universe. I would walk knowing of the rift revealed by the thrower, a hint that there looms inexplicably in nature something above the role men give her. I knew it from the man at the foot of the rainbow, the starfish thrower on the beaches of Costabel. This has been somewhat different from our usual programs, but I hope you've enjoyed it and got some benefit from it. Perhaps we can talk a little bit more about it next week. But now we must end the program for our time is up. Please dedicate whatever positive potential we've accumulated today to gaining enlightenment for all beings. Thank you. And goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.